0: All right, so let's go ahead and stand for the reading of the Word of God. This is James chapter 5, James chapter 5 beginning in verse 13. This morning James asks us, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Everybody wants to be powerful, and that's true of us this morning. All of us wants to be powerful. Maybe not so much in the one, in the sense that all of us want to be president, to be in charge, to be king or queen, but in the sense that all of us want to be in charge at least of our own little worlds. Every one of us this morning wants to have the power to dictate, to decide what happens in our lives. And for this reason, Nietzsche said that life itself, all of it, all of life is the will to power. In other words, that everything we do as human beings is one giant attempt to gain power, to gain control. This can be abused and corrupted, as we can see time and time again in our history. Or power doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing. In fact, many of us this morning want power, but maybe for the right reasons. We just don't have it. The power to love perfectly, to ensure a happy marriage. The power to parent our children to the point where we can say anything to them and they would listen to us and obey. Right? The power to stay healthy to push back disease, the power to fight cancer, the power to land the right job, the power to find the right person, the power to close the right deal, the power to fight injustice, the power to conquer our sin. Life, you could say, is a constant struggle for power, and we all feel it. We feel it all too well now. Just this last month, Anand Giraharadas who is an author, a columnist, International New York Times. This is what he said about power. He said, if anything unites America right now in this fractious moment, it is a widespread sentiment that power is somewhere other than where you are. In other words, that there is such a thing of power, and you know that you don't have it, and somebody else does. And when we are confronted with our own lack of power, When our powerlessness is exposed, we are filled with fear. And when our powerlessness is exposed, we do one of two things. We either, in desperation, do anything in order to regain that false sense of power. Or, we pray. This morning we're going to talk about prayer. But the way we're going to talk about prayer is a little bit different. We're going to talk about prayer in terms of our own powerlessness and the power of God. You see, prayer is where our powerlessness collides with the power of God. Prayer is God's gracious gift to his people to empower his people even when they are the most powerless. You see, I believe this morning that many of us struggle to pray because we struggle with power. We are so desperately clinging to our own ability, our own control, and our own power that prayer, if we're honest, doesn't make sense to us. It's only when we are most powerless that we begin to see the power of God in prayer. And so this morning, I want to look at it in this way. First, we're going to consider three ways that we are powerless. Three questions that James will ask of us. The first is this. We will see that we are powerless in our suffering. Second, we will see that we are powerless in our sickness. And third, we will see that we are powerless in our sin. But then we will turn from our own powerlessness to the power of God. And we will see this morning that by the grace and sovereign mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, we possess the power of God in prayer. Prayer is this mysterious, amazing spiritual moment in life when our own powerlessness is graciously met with the power of God. The first way that we are powerless is this. We are powerless in our suffering. I want you to look with me at verse 13, and James asks a question. It's a question for even us this morning. He says this, is anyone among you suffering? Now, he asked this rhetorical question because he knows the answer is yes. You see, everybody suffers. Suffering shows no partiality. Every one of us in this room has suffered or is suffering, or will suffer. Heartache, anxiety, depression, sadness, mourning, loss, loneliness, fear. All of us suffers. Romans 8 tells us that when sin entered the world, the world was subjected to futility. It was subjected to suffering, and all of us feel this pain. But believe it or not, as I say these words, You might struggle to believe them. Some of you this morning think that you are alone in your suffering. As you come into a church like this, filled with this many people, and you look around you and you think, with all of these people, with their smiling faces, wearing their Sunday best, I don't fit in. I don't belong because I am the only one here who's suffering. This morning, I want you to know that you are not alone. All of us suffer. All of us suffer. And we are in this suffering together. As the ancient saying goes, be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. Others of you this morning, you hear that everyone suffers and you don't like it either. And the reason you don't like it is because you're not suffering now. And like most of us, we're all working very hard to avoid suffering, aren't we? Our society spends so much time and resources, energy, even dollars, in an attempt to make us immune to pain, immune to suffering. And so even at the prospect of suffering, we avoid it, we run away, we put up a wall. Why? Because when we suffer, we are confronted with our own powerlessness. When we suffer, we know that we are vulnerable. And nobody likes to be vulnerable. We hate the idea of vulnerability. And so we've learned to cope, right? We've learned to put up walls. We've learned to push back against darkness by putting a smile on our face. And when people ask, how are you doing? We learn to say, I'm fine. But the problem with that is not only are we lying to one another, but we're lying to ourselves. You may be aware of of a woman named Brene Brown. She is a research professor at the University of Houston. And she's a woman who's dedicated the last several years of her career and life to studying vulnerability, scientifically. And this is what she's found, that when we numb vulnerability, we numb joy. In other words, in our attempt to try to get away from being vulnerable, in our attempt to get away from suffering, we also push away the good things in life. We push away joy. She goes on by saying this, embracing our vulnerabilities is risky, but not nearly as dangerous as giving up on love, on belonging, and joy. The experiences that make us most vulnerable. Only when we are brave enough to explore the darkness, she says, will we discover the infinite power of our light. Okay, so what is she saying? Well, she's saying, well, well, you have to really embrace vulnerability, not avoid it in order to experience real joy. You need to run towards your suffering, not away from it, in order to truly know joy. It reminds me of James chapter 1. If you remember what James said in the very beginning of his letter, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. In other words, don't run away from your trials, but run towards them and recognize that God is using your suffering for your joy. And what I find so fascinating about Brene Brown is not just that she stumbled upon a biblical truth as a research professor, but that so many people are flocking to her findings. She gave a TED Talk called The Power of Vulnerability, and today it's one of the most watched of all the TED Talks, 4.5 million views. Why? Because I think all of us this morning know that this is true. We know deep down that we are all vulnerable. We just don't want to admit it. We know that we are powerless. We're just trying everything we can to stop it. So this morning, James asks you and he asks me, he says, is any of you, are any of you suffering? And the answer, of course, the vulnerable, honest answer is yes. Yes, we are. And so what do we do? James says, Pray. In the same way that he said earlier in chapter 1, if any of you lacks wisdom, then ask God. He's saying, if any of you is suffering this morning, then you should pray. You should pray because as we pray, we are embracing our suffering, embracing our powerlessness, and we are inviting the power of God, the one who suffered for us, to grant us the power of the resurrection. We pray with Paul, Philippians 3, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Everybody suffers. The question is, what do you do with your suffering? Brothers and sisters in Christ, this morning, if you know Jesus, you are not alone in your suffering. He suffered for you. He died for you. And when you pray, your God knows what it is to suffer. The first way that we are powerless is in our suffering. The second is that we are powerless in our sickness. Again, James asks, verse 14, Is any of you sick? Is anyone among you sick? Let him call on the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. That's another rhetorical question, one that he knows the answer is yes. Why? Well, just as none of us are immune to suffering, No one in this room is immune to sickness. All of us have, are now, or will be sick of varying degrees. And one day, all of us will be mortally sick. He says sickness has a way of teaching us about our powerlessness. Nobody likes to be sick. I am the world's worst patient. I hate to be sick. My wife can testify to that. I am a terrible sick person because I hate being powerless. I hate being dependent on other people. I've never felt more sick than I did in the jungles of Cameron when I was 19. I was serving there on a medical mission trip. And I woke up one day on a cot in the middle of nowhere in the jungle with 104 fever. And it was approaching even higher than that. And what made it so scary was not just that I was alone in a jungle away from good medical care, but that I was really with two of my best friends from high school who were in medical school and who knew just enough to diagnose me with about the 15 of the scariest diseases you could possibly think of. <laughs> and so here I was, not knowing what was happening. i what was going, I'm just taking Advil, trying to get my fever to go down, and I knew. I've got to get help. I've got to see a doctor. And so we began a half day's journey an SUV down a treacherous mountainside to get to the nearest town where I could see a doctor. And finally, after hours, I walk into this doctor's office. It's hot. I'm burning up. And I tell this doctor my symptoms, and I tell him I'm trying to take Advil. And he looks at me, and not only does he not know what I have, but he tells me that he believes that Advil will hurt me. And I know in that moment, this doctor cannot help me. And suddenly... The moment that I became most sick came the moment that I've never felt more powerless. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Sickness has a way of teaching us that we're not in control. And even the best doctors will tell you the body, the human body is a mystery. There's almost, there's only so much that modern medicine can truly do. And so when we've exhausted out all every single other option and we are there on a hospital bed, Even the most staunch atheists will find themselves praying. Praying that maybe God would somehow bring his power into that powerless moment and intervene. And so James asks us this morning, is any of you sick? Do any of you recognize that you are powerless in your sickness? Then you should pray, James says. Pray that the power of God would come upon you and that you might be healed, but he he commands a specific type of prayer, not just that you would pray for yourself and pray for one another, but that you would invite the elders of the church to pray for you. And this morning I must tell you that of all the ministries that we have at PCPC, I am most proud of this one. And that's one that we don't even advertise. As the elders of this church... We believe this passage. We believe that God meets us in our powerlessness. That God heals the sick. And so, every single day of the week, there is a pastor who is on call. Who is visiting the sick of our church in hospitals all over the DFW Metroplex. Every single day, ready to go and to pray with the sick. Every day our pastors gather at 11 o'clock to pray pray for you to pray for one another why because we believe prayer is powerful on Friday mornings our elders gather together early in the morning to pray and once a month once a month Monday night the third Monday our session will gather at night and anyone who desires to be prayed over can come to come and tell us that they are sick We'll anoint them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We'll lay hands on them and we pray for them. Why? Because it's in those moments of utter powerlessness that we experience the power of God. The power of God in prayer. James, he continues, he says, The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Now this phrase, prayer of faith, is a Greek phrase that much like a lot of James, he made up. You don't see it in the Greek anywhere else, the idea of prayer of faith. But I think what he's talking about, again, he's going back to James chapter 1. If you realize, we're at the end of James. And so much of what he's doing is connecting back to the beginning. James 1.6, he says, When you pray, ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. So he's saying, hey, when you pray, pray with faith. And God who hears you will answer you. Now, this morning, that's a wonderful promise, but it also can lead to great and dangerous error. In other words, you might think that you need to pray, and if you have enough faith, then whatever you pray will come to pass, and if what you pray does not happen, then you don't have enough faith. That's not at all what James is saying. In a little bit, we'll talk more about unanswered prayer. But what I want you to see is this. When you feel like God might not be answering your prayer when you are praying with great, great faith, and you're praying that God would heal your sickness, and you think that he does not hear you, I want you to consider this, the prayer of Jesus on the cross, when he prayed and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, though it seemed like God had completely abandoned his own son, we know that ultimately on the third day, God did not abandon Jesus Christ, and neither has he abandoned you. Is any of you among you sick? Pray. Pray that God would come in power and heal you. The third way that we are powerless is this we are powerless in our sin. James continues. He says, If he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. We are powerless in our suffering. We are powerless in our sickness. And we are powerless in our sin. And just like sickness and suffering is universal, sin is universal too. Every single person in this room is a sinner. We know because the Bible tells us that's true. Romans 3, Paul says, No one is righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And not only is every one of us in this room a sinner, but all of us are powerless. In our sin, we, left to ourselves, are powerless against sin. Paul makes this all too clear in Ephesians 2, verse 1, when he says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. In other words, you are so powerless against sin that you are as good as dead. And try as much as you might to have the power, your own power, against sin. You don't. And deep down, I think we know it. see, Genesis tells us that when sin entered the world, shame entered with it. When we are confronted with our own powerlessness in sin, we experience a powerful feeling called shame. Adam and Eve, when they disobeyed God, were told that suddenly they knew that they were naked. And in their nakedness, in their exposure, they did everything they could to cover themselves. And after they covered themselves, it says that they heard the sound of God walking in the garden and they were filled with fear and they hid from God. You see, shame is this overwhelming sense that we are powerless in our sin. One of my old professors, Ed Welch, He put it this way. Shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did or something done to you or something associated with you. Shame is the feeling of being exposed, of being humiliated or to strengthen the language, he says. To strengthen the language, shame is you are disgraced because you acted less than human and there are witnesses. It's this feeling that if anybody knew What we've done, this feeling of being exposed, and the greatest witness to our sin, we know, is God himself. And that is why, just like Adam and Eve, when we sin, we find ourselves running as far from God as we can in our shame. Because we know God has witnessed our sin. Prayer. Prayer is the greatest weapon we have against shame. Because prayer is an invitation not to run from God in our sin, but the gracious invitation to run towards God in our sin. Prayer says bring your sin to the foot of the cross, to be vulnerable and dependent, to lay yourself down and to confess your sin. And not only are you able to do that and run from your shame, but God in his love and mercy will embrace you. He will embrace you. And so James says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Next week, as we end James, we'll talk more about confession and repentance. But this morning, what I want you to know is this, that there is power. There is power for those who recognize they are powerless. They are powerless in their sin. Ephesians 2, again, Paul says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And then he says in verse 4, but God being rich in mercy, even when he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Jesus Christ in his power conquered our sin and our shame. And he is inviting you, he's inviting you to me. Don't run. Don't run from God. But embrace your own powerlessness and run to the only one who has the power to conquer your sin and your shame. We are powerless, utterly powerless, powerless in our suffering, powerless in our sickness, powerless in our sin. But James ends this morning reminding us that though we are powerless, God has given us the gift of prayer that we might be graciously met with the power of God. So the last thing I want you to see this morning is that we possess the power of God in prayer. Look with me. James says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, having gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Lastly, James gives us the picture of true power, a power that every single person in Christ possesses. It's a power that is not our own. It's a power that is borrowed, a power that's been entrusted to us, a power that originated with the character of God Himself, but a power that we have in prayer. The prayer of a righteous person, James says, has great power as it is working. Now, we might be tempted to hear these words and think, okay, The prayer of a righteous person. So I guess what this means is, in order for my prayers to be powerful, in order for my prayers to be effective, then I need to be righteous. In other words, the ability of a prayer to be effective depends on the ability of the person praying. But that is not the case at all. And to prove the point, James gives us an example. The person of Elijah. And James goes out of his way to say that Elijah is a man with a nature just like ours. In other words, he's just like you and me. He's just a person He's operating our borrowed righteousness and borrowed power, just like you and just like me. The reason he was able to do these things is not because of who he was, but because of who God is. God is the one who made Elijah righteous. God is the one who made Elijah powerful. And so when Elijah prayed, those prayers came in power. Not because of Elijah, but because of who God is. So to understand the power of God in prayer, we need to understand the power of God. God's power is central to all of his attributes. Central to who he is and what makes God, God. The fact that God is powerful underlies everything of who he is. In other words, let me put it this way. Consider some of the attributes of God. Love, goodness, wisdom, his sovereignty. Every single one of these has power at the center Great Puritan Stephen Charnock put it this way. He said, all holiness is the beauty of God's attributes. And so it is that power is that which gives life and action to all of his perfections. In other words, it's the power of God that makes his love active in our lives. It's the power of God that makes his sovereignty at work in our lives. And this is good news for us this morning because it tells us this, that when we pray, God has the power to actively work in the midst of our suffering, our sickness, and our sin. This is a phenomenal promise and gives us great confidence and great hope that there is great power in prayer. Not our power, but the power of God. But this is also something that can lead to great cynicism, great pain, and great doubt. Because this morning you might be asking, well, if God is so powerful, then why hasn't he answered my prayer? If God is so powerful, then why is he not answering my prayer? When we face our own powerlessness, I believe we need to submit first to the power of God. But the much more difficult thing is not only to submit to his power, that's hard enough to admit that we are powerless, but then we must also submit to his plan. His power and his plan go hand in hand. They work together. And there's no greater picture of where human powerlessness is confronted by the power of God and his perfect plan than the Garden of Gethsemane. We end this morning in Luke chapter 22. It tells us just before Jesus went to the cross, he went to the garden to pray. And this was his prayer. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to Jesus an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed even more earnestly, and sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. It's a startling image picture of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, praying to his Father with such suffering and agony and vulnerability that literally he is sweating drops of blood because he knows what he is about to face. The cross of Christ, and not just a death, a torturous death, a shameful death, a powerless death, but that he is going to take on the sin of the whole world. And so he prays, Father, if you are willing Take this cup from me. In other words, if there is any other way, take the cup of wrath that you are about to pour out on me for the sins of the whole world. Take it from me. Take it from me. Did God hear his prayer? Yes. Did God answer his prayer? One way you might say No. But another way, you could say, yeah, he did. But his answer was no. This is why the second part of Jesus' prayer is so profound. He says, not my will, but yours be done. You see, in that moment, Jesus had given up. He'd emptied himself of all of his divine power. And in that moment of powerlessness, he was crying out to God, take this cup from me. And God's answer was, no, my plan is perfect. And yet Jesus also prayed, not my will, but yours be done. And he submitted himself to the power and plan of God. And Jesus Christ took on our powerlessness. Jesus Christ took our suffering, our sickness, our sin, and our shame. And in that moment of powerlessness on the cross where he died, He came in power to conquer our suffering, sickness, and shame. You see, it's in the powerlessness of the cross that we find the most power, the very power of God. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ took on what you lack. The fact that you are powerless against all things and he has given you the power of his death and resurrection. And so this morning, James asks, is any among you suffering? Is any among you sick? Have any among you sinned? And he's inviting you. He's calling you. He's begging of you. Pray. Pray to the one who sent his son to take on your suffering, sickness, and sin. Pray to the one who knew powerlessness in order that you might know the very power of God, the power of the cross. Let me pray for you, let me pray for myself, and let's sing together. Father, we pray, and as I pray this morning again, I'm reminded of my own powerlessness. That it There is nothing that I can do, no words that I can speak, no power that I possess that could change myself, to change the heart of anybody here. And so Father, we pray that you would come to us in power, that you would take our suffering, that you would take our sickness, that you would take our sin, and that you would remind us this morning of your own power through the power of the cross of Christ. And that this morning, as we were reminded of your great power, that our hearts would be lifted up and that we would worship you, our powerful King of kings and Lord of lords. It's in the strong and powerful name of Jesus Christ, we pray, amen. Let's stand and let's sing together.